You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I've asked you to do that over the course of the last few weeks. We are in a series entitled Nailing the Gospel. Our desire in this series is to bring some theological precision to the terms that we use to define the gospel. And in order to do that, we're having to learn some history because there was a period in the church's history about 500 years ago where the church had lost some theological precision and there were some wonderful men that God used to bring reform through the Protestant Reformation and to bring some theological precision back to the gospel. And we're here today as Protestant worshipers in a Protestant church because those reformers brought us back to the reform needed in the church. I just want to get right to the scripture here this morning, Romans chapter 5. I trust you brought your Bible, eyes on your Bible as I look at mine. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how I told you a few weeks ago, Christ is not Jesus' last name. And touchdown is not Jesus' first name, for some of you that need to know that. Christ is a title. It is a position. He came to be the Christ. We're going to talk about what it means to be in Christ alone this morning. Verse 2, through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Skip down here to verse 6. And I'm telling you what we're about to read is the meat of the Bible. If you could just wrap your head around verses 6 through 12, it would unlock everything in the Bible. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 500 years ago, the reformers brought a new vocabulary, a recovered vocabulary to the truths of the gospel. And out of the Protestant Reformation, there were these five solas. Sola is a Latin word for alone. And these five solas define for us what we believe about the gospel. 
and we've said it this way in a simple statement, scripture alone defines justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so last week we looked at what it means to have faith alone, that it's not faith and works that God counts as righteousness. It is faith alone that is counted as righteousness before God. But that faith has an object. It's not just faith, it's faith in the finished work of Christ. And so this morning, we're talking about what it means to be in Christ alone, to have our faith rooted in Christ alone. I wanna give you the big idea of the message here this morning. This is everything I wanna say. I wish I could just say this statement, say amen, you are loved and go home, but we're gonna unpack it, here it is. Christ alone, through his death upon the cross, has provided the only sufficient sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. Now, for some of you, that's old hat. You could have said that pretty much the same way I said it. You were taught that in vacation Bible school. You were raised in a Christian home. You've come to church. You've sung the songs. You know the hymns. You've memorized the Bible. And you could pretty much wrap your head around the fact that Christ alone, through his death upon the cross, has provided the only sufficient sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. But please hear me this morning. Every failure in the Christian life is a failure to believe what is on that slide. Every time we hear the truth of the gospel, every time we are reminded of the finished work of Christ on the cross, Every time we receive communion, which by the way, we're going to do at the end of the service today, it is another opportunity for us to choose to believe that Christ alone through his death upon the cross has provided the only sufficient sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. We talk about nailing the gospel. That is the nail that we are pounding over and over and over again. Now, for a guy that's been preaching that message for about 30 years now, I feel like I say the same thing every Sunday morning. And yet, there are so many people that want to detract, to add something to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that is the only provision for the atonement of sins that God has ever provided. It is the object of our faith. That is what we believe. And until or unless you believe with all your heart that statement, you cannot be saved, you cannot be made right with God. It is belief in that statement that brings us into right relationship with God. That is the gospel. 
That is the good news of the Bible. Whatever else the Bible says, it flows from what we just read in Romans chapter five. We love the purity of the gospel so much that we are compelled to define it We are compelled to defend it. We are compelled to contrast it with distorted gospels that can't save. My heart is heavy every Sunday morning because I live with the knowledge that there will be millions of people that will come to a church building, plant themselves in a seat for an hour, an hour and a half, and walk out of there and do nothing to exercise faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there will be many churches that have drifted so far from that statement that they think they are actually engaging God and yet the only way to engage God is through faith in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only sufficient sacrifice to make atonement for sin. Any church that subtracts or adds anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ is not an authentic gospel preaching church. No matter what else they preach, they should take the sign down in the parking lot. It's not a real church. We love the gospel and we wrap our lives around that truth. It is our only hope of escaping this life without experiencing the just, righteous wrath of God. And we are Protestant. And Protestants and Catholics have very different understandings of the gospel. And I want to be so clear this morning, okay? I have asked people to pray for me that I would be sweet this morning, okay? (laughs) Would you pray for me that I would be sweet as I continue this message, okay? We have some real doctrinal differences. That's why we're not all worshiping in the same church this morning. Um, we're, We're contrasting the differences and I want to be accurate and fair and state the position of what we believe is Protestants about the gospel and what the Catholic teaching is about the gospel. And listen, I am fully aware that there are people in here that may still identify as Catholic or you may love someone who identifies as a Catholic. So if you came out of a Catholic background, I've I've had a lot of people come up and express appreciation. Thank you for helping me understand the differences. I, I realize that there are people in here that either are employed by, coach for, or play for a Catholic institution in our community called Notre Dame. And if, if you are connected in any way, you should really probably be one that says, I really need to know the differences between the Protestant understanding of the gospel and the Catholic understanding of the gospel. To be clear, I want you to understand, I am not responsible for the Catholic church. I am not the Pope. 
all in favor of me not being the Pope? Uh, me, yes, I do not want to be the Pope. I'm not the Pope of this church. I am not a Pope, okay? I'm just one proclaiming the gospel. And I want, to, I want you to understand, that it is not my purpose to try to fix the doctrine in the Catholic Church. My job is to fix the bad theology that you brought into my church, okay? And there is enough bad theology in this room to keep me busy. That's why we are preaching the gospel, that Christ alone, through his death upon the cross, has provided the only sufficient sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. To be clear, the Catholic Church affirms that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ, it is not accurate to say that Protestants believe that salvation is by grace through faith and Catholics believe that salvation is by works. That is an inaccurate statement. Stop saying that. Our difference is centered on the word alone. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe that justification happens in the moment when we wrap our lives around the truth of the gospel. It is a declaration by God, a legal decree that changes our status before God and puts us in right standing before him, and any attempt to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross distorts the gospel. It diminishes the work of Christ as insufficient to save those who believe. Sometimes people ask me, Trent, do you believe that there's real, genuine, born-again, heaven-bound Christians in the Catholic Church? Yes, of course. But those that are genuinely born again, heaven-bound Christians in the Catholic Church are born again in spite of the official doctrine of the Catholic Church, not because of it. Do I believe that people at Harvest Bible Chapel are born again? Please say there's a few. But if you are, I want to believe that it is not in spite of what we teach. It is because of what we teach. And so we have two very different understandings. And, and a lot of former Catholics that I've met have told me, it's like, I, I really haven't really ever been taught what the official positions are over there. And so we just want to simply answer the question, what does God say is necessary for a person to be saved? Is that a fair question? Isn't that like the most important question? <laughs> How do I escape hell? Just somebody just give me a clear answer on that. Uh, that's what we're trying to do. We try to do that every Sunday. The answer is on the screen, okay? It's Christ alone through his death upon the cross, he has provided the only sufficient sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. But it really makes no difference what I say you have to do to be saved. It only matters 
what God has said must be done. If what you believe about salvation is different than what God has said about salvation, it is my responsibility to lovingly tell you, stop believing that and start believing what God has said about justification and salvation and reconciliation with God. The truth of the matter is throughout human history, there is something so twisted in the human heart that we want to believe we can contribute something to our salvation. We just can't admit that we are hopelessly lost, that we are absolutely incapable of fixing our sin problem. And so we've always invented man-made attempts to reach God, man-made self-righteous religion to connect with God. We wanna build bridges from man to God instead of trusting God to build a bridge from God to man. We're prone to think that we can participate in our salvation. We want to contribute something to our salvation. It's, it's all through the Bible. You get to the third or fourth page of your Bible and we're introduced to these two guys, Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. And we're told that Cain presented the work of his hands to God as a way to try to appease God. But Abel brought the fruit of the field, something only God could do, life produced from a crop. And one was acceptable and wasn't, one wasn't. One was offered by faith, one was offered by works. We get to the 11th chapter of the Bible and we found a bunch of guys after they got off the ark and populated uh, the earth for a little bit, they built this tower to God, trying to climb their way to God as a work. We get to Abraham and Sarah and God makes a promise that he's gonna give them a son, but they can't wait long enough and so they have to manufacture and engineer their own son through a, a, a surrogate mother. It, man just has a propensity to want to fix himself and God throughout human history and throughout the Bible rejects man-made attempts to be made right with God. When Jesus got on the scene, he kept running into confrontations with these guys called the Pharisees who had created 613 commandments just to add to what God had already said. Jesus confronted man-made self-righteous religion over and over. He exposed it and he rebuked it because it will be rejected by God. And then we get to the New Testament and over and over through the, the, the epistles, the apostles are warning about attempts to add works to our faith. I'll tell you a little secret. It's not a secret after I tell you. On Thursday, I went to mass. Did I hear an audible gasp in the room right there? It's, it's okay, it's, it's just good. I, I, I'm like, if I'm gonna be talking about this stuff, I wanna see, see it firsthand. And so Tyler and Holder and I, we went down to Notre Dame, went to the Basilica. Have you ever been to the Basilica? Isn't that beautiful? I mean, there's so much inspiring imagery there and it just takes your breath away. It's an awe-inspiring experience. I wish we could have the Basilica. That would be great if we could just kind of plant a campus there. That'd be awesome. And, uh, or anything like that that we could build, it'd be great. So. Um, we're not building anything like that, by the way. Um, too expensive. So we, I went there, and, and I, it was my first experience. It was about a 30-minute service, 
Um, there were songs sung. Uh, we sang a song that I used to sing in my youth group, Seek Ye First, the Kingdom of God. I'm like, yes, I'm feeling good. And, um, and then there was a scripture reading. And the man came out, he, he opened the Bible. It's always a great thing to do when you're worshiping Christ. And he read, he announced the scripture reading from the book of Galatians. And when he said that, I went, really? Do you know what the theme of the book of Galatians is? And he read Galatians 3, 1, 2, and 3, which essentially says this, you stupid Galatians. That was his translation. You stupid Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Do you think that somehow you have begun in the spirit, you can now be completed by works? Do you not know that it is only by faith? It was everything I could do not to shout amen in the, in the basilica. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And then we went through the rest of the service. Listen, any religion, whether it's labeled Harvest Bible Chapel or Roman Catholicism, any faith system that attempts to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is bad religion. Christ alone can save us. Let me ask you this question. Is Christ alone enough for you? Or is there something in you that says, but don't I have to go to church? Don't I have to pray some prayers? Don't I have to stop kicking my dog? Don't I have to be nice to my wife? Don't I have to like do some spiritual push-ups or prove my worth or give some money? There's something in us so bent that we have to keep calling ourselves back to faith alone in Christ alone. Is it Christ alone or is it Christ and me cooperating? even if it's like 99% Christ and it's just 1% me? Or is the gospel Christ alone through his death upon the cross providing the only sufficient sacrifice for atonement for my sins. We've read the scripture here, just five observations. First of all, Christ alone shows God's love for us while we were sinners. Look at verse six. For while we were still weak at the right time. Do you see the, the phrase there, the reference to time? There's three references to time in these five verses. And it is signified by the word while. Verse six says, while we were still weak. Verse eight says, while we were sinners. Verse 10 says, while we were enemies. At that time, while you and I were enemies of God, the first thing it says, while we were weak, that doesn't mean like weak like you are when you've got a cold and you're operating at like 80% rather than 100%. Weak means morally insufficient, absent of moral strength, having no ability to work our way to God. And then it uses the parallel in verse six, while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So if you're wondering what weak means, it means you're ungodly. Ungodly means you are the antonym of God. And while we were the antonym of God, 
It was at that time that Christ died for us. In verse 8, it says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand that your sinning is not your primary problem? You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because at your core, you are a sinner. It's your nature. And it leaves you an enemy of God. That's what it says in verse 10. While we were still enemies of God. Do you understand the the tragedy of what he's saying? By our sin, we have declared war on God and made God our enemy. Now, you may want to have like a friendly relationship with God, but God recognizes you not as an ally, but as an enemy because of your sin. And it has made you an object of God's wrath. You are a threat to God's holiness. And that means that God is a threat to you until or unless something happens to change our status from ungodly to godly, from weak to strong, from enemy to friend. And the bad news is there's nothing you can do to fix it. The good news is God shows his love toward those ungodly, weak enemies of his. He sent Christ at the right time so that those who had declared war on God could have God's love set upon upon them. Those who were the object of God's wrath can be made the object of God's love. While we were the object of God's wrath, God made us the object of his love. And before we had done anything good or right or strong or godly, Christ was sent by his Father to rescue us from God's wrath and to treat us as if we were not enemies, to treat us as if we had never sinned. How did he do that? He did that through his death on the cross. Christ alone died as our substitute for sin. Do you see the word for in verse six? Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see the word for in verse eight? Christ died for us. The word for is the most important word in the Bible. Christ didn't die to show a good example. Christ didn't die to provide kind of a way for you to feel good about God. What Christ did in dying actually accomplished the purpose for which it was designed. And what God designed 
Christ's death to do was accomplished on the cross once for all to guarantee the salvation of all who would repent and believe. This is what we call the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. And that doctrine is under attack by a lot of theologians and a lot of churches that would say that sounds like cosmic child abuse. How could you believe that a loving father would allow his son to be tortured and that somehow that father would punish his son on the cross? Like if a good earthly parent would do that, we would arrest them and throw them in jail for child abuse. And so you can't project that upon God. And you completely miss what God designed the cross to do, to show you his love. He treated Christ as if he had committed your sin so that he could treat you as if you'd never sinned. Christ alone died as our substitute. If there was any other way for us to be saved, Christ wouldn't have had to die. If there was any other way, and that's what Paul said in Galatians chapter two, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But he did die for a purpose. As your substitute on the cross so that you could have faith in Christ alone as the only way that God the Father has provided for salvation. Here's the third thing. Christ alone finished the work necessary to reconcile us to God. Look here at verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Do you see the word now in verse nine? Again, it's a reference to time. Do you see that it's past tense? For those that have put their faith in Christ alone, now you have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Were reconciled, past tense, finished work by the finished work of the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled. It's a finished work. Do you understand all the things that this passage says happened on the cross? Christ alone accomplished the work of justification by his blood, changing our legal status before God from ungodly to godly. He accomplished the work of propitiation. It's a great word, isn't it? What does that mean? It means he absorbed the wrath of God. That's what it says, saved by him from the wrath of God. He satisfied the just anger and wrath of God by his finished work on the cross. Christ accomplished the work of substitution, taking our place on the cross for my sin. Christ accomplished the work of redemption, paying the price for sin. He actually purchased us 
by his blood. The price of sin was blood. He shed his blood. He bought us back from the slave market of sin. He paid our ransom. Christ accomplished the work of reconciliation transforming us from enemies of God into friends of God. Reconciliation is the work of friendship. It's relational transaction. Christ did all of that on the cross. Can I ask you, what more needs to be done? It is finished. Christ's last words on the cross, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and died. The Greek word is the word tetelestai. It actually means paid in full. Don't you love it when you pay off a debt? Paid in full, bam, don't owe any more. It's done, don't send any more payments. You own it, you bought it, it's yours. Christ's last word, paid in full. You don't have to do anything else. I've done it all. The work is finished. And yet all of us are prone to create supplemental saviors to add to the work of Christ. Every personality type, every people group, every person is prone to run to Christ's supplements. Most good people don't entirely reject Christ. They just want to add to his work by being good, by being moral, by being conservative, by being responsible, and by being religious. That is the greatest Christ substitute, and religion keeps millions of people from actually being reconciled to God because they're not trusting the finished work of Christ. Can I just take a few minutes to talk to my Catholic friends here for a second? And to ask you, are you trusting in the finished work of Christ as the only thing necessary to reconcile us to God? Roman Catholicism is a very complex system. Lots of ever-changing nuances and lots of ever-changing persons and processes that aid in the salvation, supposedly, of a believer. In the Catholic understanding of the gospel, the work of salvation is never, never quite finished. Now, when we gather together weekly, what, what do we do? We share the gospel, we wrap our lives around that, and we offer worship and gratitude to God for the finished work of Jesus Christ. But our Catholic friends, when they gather weekly, they call it the Mass. How many of you ever been to Mass? You ever been to Mass? Anybody? Look at all these people who've been to Mass. Great. And yet you're in church today. Um, the centerpiece of Mass, the purpose for the gathering, is what is called the Eucharist. It's what we would call communion or the Lord's Supper, where we take the elements, a little piece of bread and about an ounce of juice, and why do we do that? We do that because Christ commanded us to. The night before Jesus was betrayed and arrested and went to the cross, he gathered his disciples together 
and they celebrated the Passover feast all the way back to the book of Exodus where it was instituted. And as good Jews, they would gather together and they would celebrate this Passover feast. And Jesus looked at them and he realized he had an opportunity here to teach them something using a word picture. I got some bread, I got some juice. Fellas, look at me. This is what he said. He held up the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me. And then he held up the cup with the juice and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And we celebrate, we're gonna celebrate that here at the end of the service. What happens in the Catholic mass, the Eucharist it's called, is something very different than, than what we believe as Protestants. And let me just read to you from the Catholic Catechism. I had a Catholic buddy just challenge me. He said, hey, Trent, when you're representing the Catholic Church, just make sure you're using the right source. It's the Catholic Catechism. So could I just read to you what the Catholic Catechism says happens or is supposed to happen at Mass? Here, here that's the verse that we look at in Luke 22 where Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. And here's the Catholic Catechism. Bear with me. It has always been the conviction of the church of God and this holy council that declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. What they're saying is that the actual substance of the bread and the substance of the wine happens in this moment in the Eucharist where it actually becomes the real body and the real blood of Christ and they term that transubstantiation. It goes on. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, makes present the sacrifice of the cross because it is its memorial and because it applies its fruit. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim, Christ, is one and the same. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. To receive communion then is to receive Christ himself who has offered himself for us. Let me summarize. Everybody come back up for air. Some of you were drowning in the moment there. Come back up for air. We're going to survive this together. What does that mean? It means that it is believed that in the mass, Christ is re-sacrificed, re-crucified. It means that in the mass, the taking of those 
physical elements is the means by which you receive Christ. You eat Christ, you cannibalize Christ. It is believed that by taking those elements, grace is infused as the sacrament into you, contributing to your salvation. Now, that is as best as I can to fairly state that position, okay? Now, that's all fine, but what does the Bible say? What has God said? Hebrews chapter nine says this. He, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, past tense. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It continues. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, are you picking up a theme? He sat down at the right hand of God. What was he saying? My work's done. I don't, I don't need to do this again. I don't need you to do it. You don't need to pretend to do it again. I did it. It was done, it was once for all, all the suffering. And three days later, he conquered all of it through the resurrection. He was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. He doesn't need to be crucified again through a ceremonial mass. Listen, there is no person, there is no priest, there is no saint that can do for you what Christ has done by his finished work on the cross. There is no process, there is no church, there is no sacrament that can do for you what Christ alone has done on the cross. Now listen, Protestants have supplemental saviors too. You know what we tend to offer? We tend to offer our good works. We, we offer our sincerity. God, I really mean well. Let me ask you this. What if I sincerely practice another religion but bypass Christ? Will I be saved? No, sincerity can't save me. What if I say my prayers? What if I attend worship? What if I love my neighbor as myself? Is that enough? No, my sincerity can't save me. How about chastity? What if, what if I do a really good job of being pure and avoiding bad movies and I don't drink and cuss and exercise sexual immorality, is that enough? No, your chastity can't save you. Christ alone is sufficient to save. How about this, ministry. I mean, surely, what about all those times that I showed up early to serve as an usher or greeter? 
What about all those times that I studied real hard and I taught that Bible class? I taught those kids back in children's ministry. What about all the calories I've burned serving others, fixing meals and cleaning houses and raking leaves without ever complaining and without ever being thanked by this church? Is that enough? Nope. Christ alone saves. It is the finished work of Christ. It is faith in the finished Christ, work of Christ alone that counts as righteousness. What is the object of your faith? It is what you do or is it what Christ has done? Very quickly, Christ alone lives to secure our salvation. Look at verse 10. He says, all of that's great, but then he escalates it. He crescendos. He says, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Wait a minute. I thought we were saved by his death. Yes. And we're saved by his life. What is he saying? He's saying that what keeps me saved is the fact that he's still alive. The same Grace and the same work that it took to get me saved keeps me saved. If you believe that everything necessary for your eternal salvation has been done on a cross by his blood 2,000 years ago, then why do you doubt your salvation? Faith in Christ alone prevents me from futile attempts to try to gain God's favor through my good behavior. Faith alone in Jesus Christ draws me out of the depressing thought of losing God's grace through bad behavior. Faith in Christ alone brings a security of knowing that it is Christ and Christ's work alone that saves me and keeps me safe. Listen, can you lose your salvation? If you could lose your salvation, you would. You're not that good. Your faith is not that strong. But if your faith is in the work of Christ, then you have every reason to believe that when you come with faith's empty hands and you embrace the sufficient work of Christ on the cross that you can know that you are saved, you can be assured that you are saved and you never have to doubt it again because everything necessary has been done by Christ. The ushers are gonna come, they're gonna grab the elements of communion right now. Don't check out on me, I got one more point. Christ alone produces life-changing joy. The final verse here, look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Moralistic, rule-keeping, religious people rarely experience joy. Have you ever noticed that? Some of the most religious people you know. You ever see them smile? No, because they're too busy working to gain God's favor. But what we have learned in the gospel is that all the work is Christ's work. Can I ask you this question? What is the object of your faith? Is it your religious exercise? Or is it your relationship 
with a risen Christ? And is there joy in knowing that you have eternally been saved? As we pass these elements, let me be very clear. We put them in a double cup. So the juice is in the top cup and the bread is in the bottom. You just take one cup, you've got both of them. Hold them there for a second, okay? We're gonna receive this together in just a moment. When Jesus told us to do this, he told us to do it as a way of remembering. He never wanted us to forget that the work is finished, that your sin is paid for. But he also warned this. He told us this is only for those who have placed their faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. If you're still trying to work this out, if you still believe that somehow you contribute to your salvation, just let these elements pass. We'd look forward to the day when God awakens faith in your heart. We're also told that we're only to take the elements of communion after a time of consideration. This was a holy sacrifice that Christ made for us on that cross. And he wants us to contemplate and to remember the price that was paid for sin. If you're carrying unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin, you need to first repent of that sin before you take the elements of communion. We're gonna do that right now. Mike is gonna lead us just in a time to contemplate, to consider here for a moment. Let's consider the price that was paid for our sin.